So we just wrapped up a short series through the first two chapters of Matthew. As we went through the Advent season, Christmas season, we looked at how Jesus fulfills the expectations of the Old Testament. He brings God's promises to bear for God's people, bringing salvation, life as the king, the king of kings, who brings blessing to the world. We talked about uh, all those connections. It was a, a great series. We got to hear from Michael and Stephen and Carrie, and I got to preach the last one. Um, but some of you may remember about a month ago, we were wrapping up a different series. We were preaching a series called Living by the Book, dealing with God's will for people in different stations of life, different seasons of life. And one of those uh, weeks got canceled because of snow and ice. And so what that means is I get to wrap up a sermon that I didn't get to preach about a month ago. We get to do it today. And the challenge for me was to not let that sermon grow over the last month. So I've tried to keep it what it was a month ago. Uh, but this morning, we're going to be talking about God's will for what we could call seasoned saints, the believers in our midst who are starting to turn a little bit gray, or maybe a lot gray, or maybe turned gray and then turned out and lost you know, some of that hair. I'm going that direction myself. But we're going to talk about God's will for the older believers in the church. You know, people today in our society dread getting old. They don't like it. And that's for a lot of reasons. And there's even maybe some of you this morning, it would be really hard for us to get you to admit your age. Some of you have been 39 for about 22 years. Um, and even as we look around us, there's a huge market for products and services that are intended to slow down or maybe even hide the effects of aging. Somehow in our society, age has become a curse to be avoided. It's become an embarrassing reality. Why is that? Why is it that we are so averse to age? Why is it that we're embarrassed by it? Why is it that we do everything in our power to hold it off and, and push it down the road? Well, I think, first of all, one of the reasons for that is that people fear death. And really, apart from Christ, apart from the hope of the gospel, I mean, think about this. Put yourself in the shoes of an unbeliever. Death is the end. There's nothing left after that. Death, for some, is a tragedy that extinguishes all joy, and it brings the loss of everything that had been gained in this life. As the old saying goes, there's no U-Hauls behind hearses. You can't take it with you. I think that's why one people feared, fear age so much. You know, those who are young often foolishly assume that, oh, well, death is a long way off. It's not going to happen to me. I'm 15 or 25 or 35. But those who are older enjoy no such delusions. They've been to too many funerals. You know that death comes for all, and it will likely come to the older among us sooner than others. That's one reason why people dread getting old. It's a fear of death. But there's a second reason, and one that perhaps may affect some in this room, and that's that the world idolizes youth. We idolize youth. We idolize its perceived pleasures and privileges. Adolescence is seen far too often as really the pinnacle of life. That the best years are those years from the time where you get your driver's license till the time when you finish college. Somewhere in there is the best season of life. And that's why I think you see sometimes not too much of a difference between an angst-filled middle schooler who just wants to get out from under their parents and be free they have a lot in common with that guy who's in his mid to late 40s facing that midlife crisis, trying to recapture something that he had back in the day. As C.S. Lewis wrote about one of his characters in the Narnia stories, after becoming a young adult, he says, she wasted all her school time 
wanting to be the age she is now, and she'll waste all the rest of her life trying to stay that age. Her whole idea is to race on to the silliest time of one's life as quick as she can and then stop there as long as she can. I think that's really the mindset of so many people in the world today. And sadly, the thinking of the world far too often infects the thinking of those in the church. Let me ask you, how do you view age? Rather than seeing old age as a curse, rather than seeing it as a sign of a once full life that has been lost, God sees age as a sign of blessing and a sign of a full life enjoyed. Consider how the scriptures describe three of the most prominent men in the Old Testament. Job 42 says that Job died an old man and full of days. And that description, full of days, isn't just a mathematical thing. Full of days means fullness, complete, whole, as it is intended to be. Genesis 25.8, it says, Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. First Chronicles 29 says of King David that he died at a good old age, full of days, riches, and honor. As we read the scriptures, our mindset starts to get changed, doesn't it? Old age, according to God, is a blessing. It's a sign of fullness. It's a gift from God that should produce within us a spirit of gratitude. We should be thankful for many years and gray hair because God does not owe long life to any of us. And we enjoy it only because he sustains and protects us. And even for those whose life has been full of difficulty, even those who have seen a lot of hard things, been through a lot of hard things, consider that such saints have had a greater opportunity to observe and experience the faithfulness of God, to receive his comfort and his grace, and to see his promises fulfilled every step of the way, what a gift that is. What fuel for joy and hope and worship. Not only does scripture view old age as a blessing from God, but also as something that is deserving of honor and respect. God says to Moses as he's giving him the law in Leviticus 19, you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. To stand up before someone is to show honor and recognition. And built into the very fabric of God's covenant people in the Old Testament, the nation Israel, is instruction to honor those who are full of years. Proverbs 20 verse 29 says, The glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. Proverbs 16 31 says, Gray hair is a crown of glory. So if old age is a blessing from God, if old age is worthy of honor, then perhaps some of us need to change our attitude. Perhaps some of our perspective needs to be adjusted by God's truth. We would do well to ask the question, therefore, what is God's will for those who are further along in the journey of life? Surely God's plan for the aged among us is not to set them to the side. Surely, retirement from the workforce does not mean retiring from serving God. Surely, those whose parenting days may be over are not done investing in the next generation of disciples. I'm going to invite you to turn this morning to Titus chapter 2. 
I want to look at God's instructions to older believers in the church. And I'll just set that up right, right up front. I'm assuming this morning that those that Paul speaks to, and therefore those I want to speak to, are those who know Jesus Christ, those who have understood and embraced the gospel. They've repented of sin and trusted in the crucified and resurrected Savior. If you don't know Jesus this morning, all of the things we're going to talk about are really impossible for you to accomplish. You don't have the power to do it if the Holy Spirit does not dwell within. And really, what God wants from you is not for you to do things in the church. He wants you to know who Jesus is and to trust him first and foremost. But just understand, I'm going to be speaking this morning to those who do believe, those who know Christ. I want to share these words from Titus chapter 2. In the book of Titus, Paul speaks to a church planter. I find this book to be personally very encouraging and relevant. Paul speaks to a church planter who had been left on a little island in the Mediterranean called Crete. And if you look back in chapter 1, Paul had told Titus that he had left him there to put in order what remained. There was people who were believing in Christ. They were receiving the gospel, and they were desiring to worship God and to serve him. And it's kind of like a vine that was growing all over the ground, and they needed a trellis built. They needed some structure. They needed some organization. They needed some direction to be put into order. And so if you read Titus, you'll see that this would require establishing healthy church leadership. Titus 1 gives instructions for elders, what they are to be character-wise and doctrinally. It also means that the church will need to preserve right doctrine. Paul is adamant in the book of Titus about defining and defending the gospel. But it also will require, if they're going to organize this church and be fruitful and faithful, it's going to require calling these people to live in a manner that is consistent with the doctrine that they have believed. So in chapter 2, Paul gives direct instruction for people in the church. And what he does is actually identify essential roles that must be fulfilled if the church is going to be healthy, if the church is going to be effective in its mission. And as you'll notice in Titus 2, especially prominent in Paul's instruction are seasoned saints, older believers who have much to offer and therefore a great responsibility in the church. I'm going to read for you our text this morning, Titus 2, 1 through 5. Paul speaking to Titus says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So the question arises, what accords with sound doctrine? What kind of life is fitting considering the truth we have received? Well, here it is in verse 2, starting in verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. God, we want to pause right now and ask for your help to understand your word and to understand how it applies to our lives. We've sung this morning, Lord, of your faithfulness to us, the faithfulness of Jesus, our Savior, the one who shed his blood, the one who represents us even now before the throne in heaven, and the one who is with us to the end, a faithful friend. God, as we consider your faithfulness to us, produce in us a desire to be faithful to you. Instruct us in the way we should go through your word 
and by your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Paul's given us some instructions in Titus chapter 2. And he's addressed specifically the older men and older women in the church. You know, there's a lot of focus that's typically placed today on the next generation, especially in the church, especially in churches that are being planted and trying to grow. And that's, that's a fitting thing, rightly so. A church with no young people is a church with an expiration date. That's just common sense. We all understand that. But what we discover in Titus 2 is, get this, a church that is all young people a church that is only young people is actually at a serious disadvantage because seasoned saints are crucial to the ministry and mission of the church. I want to look this morning at two responsibilities that we find for older believers that I believe Paul lays out for us in Titus chapter 2. The first is this. Number one, older saints are called to form the mature core of the church. Older saints are called to form the mature core of the community of faith, the church. We see this in verses two through three. A healthy church, first and foremost, Paul says, needs men who are mature and faithful. Paul expects those who are older to be, first of all, sober-minded. We see this in verse two. Older men are to be sober-minded. If I can speak to you older brothers in the room for a minute, God desires for you to be serious about the things that matter. Not checking out, but fully engaged and alert. As one preacher described it, not a sentimental old fool. Sound doctrine that is believed, like we see in chapter 2, verse 1, should affect your mindset. It shapes your attitude towards things. What really matters? Sober-minded. He continues, not only are older men to be sober-minded, but also to be dignified. To be dignified, meaning showing a measure of maturity That is worthy of respect. Yes, the younger among us are to honor and show respect to the older because it's right, but it really helps if those people are worthy of of such respect. If they carry themselves in a dignified manner, not crude, not coarse, not foolish, older men are to be honorable. And when you've been truly impacted by the most noble and precious truths of God's word, when you've received what accords, verse 1, with sound doctrine, you will come away different. Older men who know who Christ is, who fear God, who understand the power and the majesty and the glory of the gospel, they will carry themselves differently. They will be dignified. He continues on, sober-minded, dignified. Third, self-controlled. Self-control, we know from Galatians chapter five, is a fruit that the Holy Spirit produces. This is evident that someone is not walking in their own strength, that someone is not relying on their own power, that they're not in self-mode, but rather they are fully submitted to the Lord, depending on the power of His Spirit, seeking to do what God wants them to do. Such men will be self-controlled. And friends, this is a mark of spiritual maturity. If someone comes along and claims to be wise, they claim to be mature, they claim to be further along in life and to have a right to lead and have influence, You can tell if such a person is truly mature if they possess self-control. Older men are to have a mastery over their flesh, not to be slaves to your appetites, not to be slaves to your emotions, able to control your impulses, to control your reactions, to control your attitude and your words. Self-control is to be a mark of mature men in the body of Christ. He continues on. Not only self-controlled, he also says sound in faith 
in love and in steadfastness. Sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. Sound means healthy or whole. Older men, God wants your faith in him, your trust in his word to be solid. There's going to be challenges to that. There's going to be challenges to you. There's going to be challenges to your family. There's going to be challenges to the church. And we need older men in the body who trust God no matter what happens. No matter, no matter what adversity comes, no matter what disappointment happens, we need you to be consistent and firm in the faith. In doing so, you bring stability not only to your home, but also to the body of Christ. We need that kind of stability. Sound in the faith. But he also wants you to be sound in love. Sound in love. Hear this. Age and sometimes the fatigue that comes with it is not an excuse to be a grumpy, cranky, selfish, critical person. You may know a lot more than a lot of people. You may have seen a lot more than a lot of people. But that's no excuse to not demonstrate love and humility. Love is humble and kind and gracious and sacrificial. We need older men who are consistent models of this kind of love. This love is what accords with sound doctrine. We believe in a God who loves us and who says, therefore, I want you to love others. We have a Savior who sacrificed himself for us on the cross. He calls us to lay down our lives for others. We have a master who forgives calls us to forgive others. We have a king who is merciful and patient and slow to anger, and he calls us to show that same mercy to others. Sound in love. He continues on. The third description of this soundness is sound in steadfastness. Sound in steadfastness. This means, men, we need you to endure. Don't quit. God calls you to hold on, <clears throat> like that pit bull that won't let go until he's dead. That's literally what God desires from us as believers, to persevere in the faith all the way to the finish line. What this means is that we need in the church older men who don't always take the path of least resistance, who do the hard things because they're the right things, and they endure. Old men who are dependable and persevere to the end, sound and steadfastness, in faith and in love. Men, your wives need husbands like this. And your kids need dads like this. Your grandkids need a grandpa like this. And your church needs you to be this kind of man. God calls you to be this kind of man. But it's not just men that Paul addresses in the church. He also addresses the older women in the body and shows that the life and the health and the fruitfulness of the church's mission also depends on faithful women in the body, fulfilling their God-ordained roles. Look in verse 3. He says, older women likewise. That little word likewise, I believe, implies that everything that's gone before, all the things we've just talked about, they also apply to the women. The women don't have an excuse to quit, to not be steadfast in love, to not have self-control. No, all of that also applies equally to the older women in the body. But then Paul continues on to give some additional specifics as he describes the roles and, and the, the essential function of women in the body. Verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior. 
reverent in behavior. I think this kind of parallels that dignified, uh, the, the word dignified that describes older men. Reverence, this is the same word that's used to describe a priest, a priest who's fulfilling sacred duties in the temple. Reverence means the way you carry yourself. When you realize, when you are totally aware, painfully almost aware, that every action, every gesture, every duty you perform is done in the presence of your God. Imagine yourself being a priest, going into that sacred place, knowing that God is there, and that you have the sacred duty of offering worship to him. I don't think you're going to you know, maybe be distracted as much as you would be if you're doing some of your normal duties at home. There is a heightened awareness of God's presence and your responsibility to be reverent before him. This is to describe the older women in the church. The fear of the Lord is to be modeled by mature believers in the body. He goes on, the older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers. Not slanderers. The word for slander here is the same word that's actually used as a title for Satan 34 times in the New Testament. Satan, we know, is the adversary. He's the accuser of the brethren. Saying things that you have no business saying about other people, hear me, it's not just sin, it's actually a satanic sin. And Paul charges the older women to reverently honor God rather than dishonoring people who are made in God's image. James, in James chapter 3, says, With the same mouth comes forth blessing and cursing. How is it that we can praise God out of one side of our mouth and then tear someone down out of the other side? When that person bears the image of God, being reverent to God will require not slandering people made in God's image. Older women are to be reverent, not slanderers. But third, they are to be not slaves to much wine. Although scripture does not ever forbid alcohol, it does warn us on multiple occasions of the danger of strong drink. And Ephesians flatly prohibits getting drunk. Ephesians tells us, Paul tells us there, to be filled instead with the Holy Spirit. Don't be controlled by some substance. Be controlled by the Spirit of God. What this means for our older ladies, and really for all of us, is this. Do not turn to alcohol to escape from boredom or to deal with anxiety or to relieve stress. The church needs women who are transformed by the gospel, not women who are slaves to the same vices as people in the world, people who are lost. While it may be popular and enjoyable for some older women who don't maybe have as much to do anymore, to make their career simply one of enjoying wine. Paul urges the older women in the church not to be slaves to much wine. Don't waste your life doing that. We don't need people in the church who are enslaved to the same vices as unbelievers. So this is Paul's encouragement and instruction to the older women on what they are to be reverent, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. But Paul not only outlines what older believers must be, He also gives instruction as to what they must do. So older saints are called to form the mature core of the church. But secondly, this morning, we see that older saints are also called to have a sanctifying influence in the community of faith. Your presence in the body, your role in the church is one of influence and impact on those who are coming up 
behind you. Older women and men who are mature have a great responsibility for discipling others, for helping them to follow Jesus, helping them to become like Jesus. You see, brothers and sisters, you are both to model the faith by your lives, but also to mentor younger believers in the faith. The health of the church and the success of the church's mission depends in part, get this, on the faithfulness of its members to take responsibility for those that are around them. Rather than sitting back and saying, man, I wish these young millennials would get their act together, Paul calls the older believers to roll up their sleeves, to go get coffee with them, and to help them grow in their faith. He tells the older women in verse 4, or in verse 3 rather, at the end of verse 3, says they are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and their children. Older women, sisters, it is not enough for you to simply reach a level of maturity on your own and say, yep, did my job, I got here, I made it, I learned it all, I did it all. No, it's not enough for you to reach a certain level of maturity on your own. That maturity must be shared with those who are coming behind you. You get the privilege of being like personal trainers that come alongside those who need help. And it is your relationship with these younger women, your relationship with the women sitting in this room, that will be the context the primary context for this teaching. You just got to spend time with people. Sit with them. Talk with them. Listen to them. Know them. And allow them to know you and to listen to you as well. Share your life with them. My understanding of Paul's language here is that he's talking less about formal teaching in an organized setting. Although there's definitely a time and a place for that. I am thankful and I praise God for women who have the gift of teaching who are students of the word, who are able to speak and to teach in that capacity to other women in the body. Praise God for that. But I believe the teaching he's referring to here refers more broadly just to what happens in the context of daily life. So this is a lot more about getting coffee and a lot less about PowerPoint presentations, okay? This is a relational dynamic within the body. And there's really no program we could design. There's no event or class we could create that will ever compensate for a lack of intergenerational relationships in the church. We could fill our calendar with stuff, but until there's real relationships in the body between those who are older, those who are younger, those who are more mature and those who are less mature, we'll never be able to get this job done of effectively mentoring and training the next generation. But Paul doesn't just tell older women to teach. He also tells them what to teach. He gives a brief list of examples just to get us started. This is not comprehensive, but he gives us some examples. First, he says, teach them, in verse 4, to love their husbands and children. To love their husbands and children. Now, to some of you, this might sound like a no-brainer. Well, you're married, so you must love them, and everybody loves their kids, right? So this is easy. It's not always easy. If it was easy, there'd be no need for training. If it was easy, there'd be no need for learning. There'd be no need for encouragement in this. As we talked about earlier, our love is not simply one of emotion and affection, although that's definitely there. It's one that's modeled after the cross. It's shaped by the love that God has shown us through Christ. Love that lays aside its privileges and its glories and its prerogatives to make yourself a servant, to empty yourself to lay down your life for others. Biblical love means sacrifice and humility and service, self-denial, and that's hard. That's really hard. 
But the gospel reveals the love of God displayed in Christ, sets the model for us, and Paul says, listen, those of you who have learned over the years how to deny self and how to effectively love your husband, your children, others outside your home, share with others what you've learned. Train them to love in this way. He secondly says, teach them to be pure, to be pure. I think we know to be pure is a challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge. And Paul doesn't fall into any stereotypes of thinking that purity is just something that men deal with. Notice he says, teach the young women to be pure. Pure in thought, pure in desire, pure in your communication with others, pure in what you feed your mind and feed your heart. We serve a holy God who saved us so that we might become like him. Look down at verse 11 in the same chapter. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Sounds like purity, doesn't it? The gospel doesn't just set us free from the penalty of sin. It's intended to purify us and to produce change and to make us holy. Older women, teach the young women to be pure. Show them how the gospel applies to life. Show them how it has transformed your life. Share with them how God has grown you and deepened your love for him and developed holiness in your life. Teach them to be pure. It says also you are to encourage them to be working at home. Working at home. Now, this does not mean that a woman can't work outside the home. I don't believe that. Rather, what I think Paul is emphasizing is that teach the young women to embrace their responsibilities in their home. If you go back to Proverbs 31, I think you have a great example of a woman who's hardworking and industrious, who takes care of her family and her home, and in addition to that, she goes out and makes money on the side. I mean, she is a high-functioning woman, and that is praised, and different people have different levels of capacity for doing that. But I think Paul's emphasis here is not so much that you don't work outside the home, but rather that you don't neglect your duties in the home, to be a hard worker, to be faithful, to be industrious. You know what I think keeps a lot of young women from being faithful to this instruction, to be working at home? I don't think it's having a job outside the home. I don't think it's that. I think it's rather things like social media, your time on Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, what others am I leaving out? I don't know all the, the most recent ones. Reading the mommy blogs, maybe watching your favorite show on Netflix. You're just going to sneak in one episode or two or seven, you know, before your husband gets home from work. Maybe it's online shopping, reading 875 million Amazon reviews on something you're not even going to buy, right? It's easy for us to get sucked into that. It's not just women. It's, it's everybody. These are the things that keep women from being worker, working at home. It's, it's more fun to do crafts and projects around the house and neglect maybe the things that are essential, the things that need to get done. I think Paul's point is that it's easy to be at home but not working at home. Paul encourages the older women to teach the younger women, train them to be working at home. The bottom line is that young women have a need to grow in faithfulness, to be responsible in the sphere of ministry that God has given them in their home. If young women have a family, such hard work is a means of serving others and therefore glorifying God. If young women are single, 
And what this means is that such hard work is a necessary character trait that needs to be developed to help protect them from becoming self-absorbed, maybe wasting their lives because they have perhaps a little bit more time on their hands that could easily just be spent on self. Hard work that's aimed at serving others and glorifying God is an important character trait that older believers are to pass on to the younger. Paul continues not just to be working at home, but also to be kind, to be kind. You know, working at home does not mean, ladies, that you are the dictator of the home, that it's your castle. No, there is to be a warm tenderness that flows from a good-natured heart. Kindness is really love expressed, isn't it? It's love that is expressed to others as you show care to them, as you think of their needs. As those who have received Christ's love, we are to love others. Whether it's physical family in your home, whether it's your spiritual family in the church, whether it's your neighbors, we're called to love them too. In Newsflash, Jesus even says we're to love our enemies. So this kindness is an expression of love to all people. And sometimes it's hard for us to learn. Train them to be kind. And Paul continues again after that. He says not only to be kind, in verse 5, but also to be submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, I won't get too deep into this because a couple weeks ago, we already talked about God's design for marriage and specifically his will for wives and their unique relationship to their husbands and their function in the home. But it's worth pointing out this morning, Paul doesn't say that these women are to be submissive to men in general. He says they are to be submissive specifically to their own husbands, those whom God has given to them as their head, those whom God has called to be the leaders in their home. The gospel should cause us to embrace the roles that God has designed for us and to embrace them with joy. And sometimes, again, this is hard. It's hard to follow young husbands because they don't always do it right. They don't always know how to best lead. Sometimes they drop the ball. Sometimes they don't make the best decisions. They're growing and they're in process as well. And it's especially hard for those whose husbands may not even be believers. That's why older women are to come alongside young women and help them, to teach them, to train them how they can submit to their husbands and therefore honor God. In Christ, we know that all are equal, but our complementary roles bring glory to God. We embrace those roles through faith, and that's part of our testimony to the world. Um, Paul's motivation for these instructions, he says, is so that the word of God may not be reviled. Our transformed lives testify to the power of this doctrine, this gospel, this teaching that we claim to believe. So old, older women are to teach the younger women these things. But I don't think it's just the older women who are supposed to teach younger women. I believe that Paul's emphasis here on the older saints training the younger also applies to men. Men are involved, they are to be involved in this kind of ministry too. If you look down in verse 6, it says, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. See, the younger men in the room need some help too. And I think this, it's funny, this is the only thing that Paul says to teach the younger men. I think because this one area affects, it touches every aspect of life. If you don't have self-control, you'll fall in a million areas. If you do have self-control, then you're set up to succeed and grow in every area of life. Now, Paul's instruction here to urge the younger men to be self-controlled, I think he's specifically talking to Titus here. But by extension, we can include older men who are to already possess this self-control in this instruction to train others and help others to grow 
in it. If older men are going to be steadfast in love, if they're going to love the younger men in their life, it's going to mean wanting what's best for them, wanting to see them grow in the faith, to become mature and like Christ. And it means you're going to have to get involved and help them to develop self-control. This is, I think, the greatest need that young men have because it affects, again, so many areas of life. And that's why Paul highlights it as the pressing issue that needs to be addressed in the lives of young men. Proverbs 25, 28 says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. That's some wisdom that we need to hear today. Solomon says a man with no self-control is vulnerable, susceptible to destruction from a million angles, 360 degrees of vulnerability. The destruction that is brought by sexual sin. The destruction that is brought by overeating. The, the destruction that is brought into your life by overspending, oversleeping, excessive drinking, unchecked anger, impulsive decisions, the consequences and the grief that's brought by a loose tongue or by laziness, video game addiction, you name it, fill in the blank. Without self-control, young men are susceptible to all of these dangers. All of these things are signs of immaturity. Lack of self-control leaves young men vulnerable. And this is crucial because if the young men in the church flounder, there will be no future leaders. There will be no next generation. The church will struggle. It is imperative that we help teach the younger men among us to cultivate self-control. The church will have no future leaders if we don't, as well as no faithful husbands and fathers for the future as well. So this is important. On the positive side, self-control, again, is a fruit of the Spirit, something that God produces in those who are alive in Christ, the reason some of our young men don't have self-control is maybe because they're not born again. Maybe because the Holy Spirit doesn't live here. And so therefore, there's no power. They are doomed forever to be slaves to their sin, slaves to the passions of the flesh. So first of all, if, if it's a fruit of the Spirit, we need to make sure young men believe the gospel and that they are experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives, but also that they depend on him, that they depend on the Spirit. And as they do, what we'll see is that young men will become faithful in prayer because they'll be able to say no to all the other distractions. They'll become faithful students of Scripture because they will be able to discipline themselves to do the hard work of digging into God's Word. Young men will become able to practice good financial stewardship, to live a pure life that's free from the shame and bondage of sexual sin. Self-control is the key to serving others, the key to denying self, and resisting a host of other temptations that rob us of joy and destroy our effectiveness for Christ's kingdom. A generation of young men who have been trained in self-control, young men who've been invested in by the older believers in the church, those young men will be poised to lead faithfully and serve faithfully in the future. So let me ask you, you older men and women in our body, do you engage in these kind of relationships? Are you having these kind of conversations? Are you encouraging this kind of growth in the people around you? If your response this morning is that, man, that all sounds great, I just don't have time. Well, then I just want to humbly suggest to you that maybe there needs to be a reevaluation of your priorities. Maybe you need to schedule some time on your calendar for like 
obeying God. I think it should fit in there at some point. Disciple younger believers. This function is essential for the ministry and mission of the church. Older believers are called to form the mature core of the community of faith and to have a sanctifying influence on those around them. Pass on what you've learned. Be a blessing in terms of encouraging the spiritual lives of others around you. That will leave a lasting impact that will bless the church and glorify God and impact others for years and years to come. So just a couple things as we, as we get ready to wrap up here. If you're going to be faithful to fulfill this role, it's going to require a couple things of you. Just in terms of application, a couple um, encouragements for you this morning. Number one, if you're going to do this, if you're going to try to do all these things we've talked about this morning, you need spiritual maturity. You need spiritual maturity. Sadly, growing old does not always automatically mean that you've really grown up. Having gray hair doesn't mean that you're wise. It doesn't mean that you're always mature. It's possible to live a long life and lack wisdom. It's possible to be in the church for decades and have a very little grasp of God's truth. See, you can't share what you don't possess. You can't teach what you haven't learned. What a shame and a tragedy it would be for you to be an older believer in the church who still needs to be fed milk, who still has to be babysat, Because there's something lacking in your character, something lacking in your conviction, something lacking in your competency, your ability to use your gifts and to to use the things that you've learned in life. You need spiritual maturity if you're going to be faithful to fulfill this kind of role in the church. So let me ask you, what are you doing to pursue spiritual maturity? Can you look at your life? We're getting ready for the beginning of a new year. As you evaluate your life, the things that you involve yourself in, the time that you spent, your focus, are you pursuing spiritual maturity? The key to spiritual maturity isn't age. It's not. The key to spiritual maturity is communion with God. That's why young people can be mature too. Those who commune with God, those who see the face of Christ, those who behold his glory are transformed to become like Jesus. The key to wisdom is fearing the Lord. So here's a few things you can do. If you want to grow in maturity, seek Christ in the scriptures. Pray for God to cultivate in you a deeper hunger and thirst for righteousness. Don't become complacent. The soul-satisfying joy of knowing Christ should produce a thirst for more of the same. Those who have seen the most and learned the most are not those who become complacent. They're the ones who are still the most hungry, the ones who want more of it because they know how good it is. When you saturate your heart with the gospel of Christ and behold his glory, it's gonna change you and produce this hunger and thirst within you. Keep seeking Christ in the scriptures and let me encourage you, be teachable. Be teachable. Never assume that you have arrived. If you do, that will mark the end of your growth in spiritual maturity. It's a dead end. Ecclesiastes 4.13 says, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Spiritual maturity brings with it humility. Humility that is willing to learn, willing to change, Willing to discover blind spots they didn't know they had. Be teachable as you seek Christ, as you seek to grow. 
We need you to pursue wisdom and maturity because you need it and, then, and we need you to have it. We need you to have it. And spiritual maturity only comes to those who are actively seeking Christ and it only comes to those who maintain a teachable spirit. So, but we, you not only need spiritual maturity if you're gonna be faithful, you also need a right perspective. You need a right perspective on eternity, on life and on death. To go back to what we talked about at the beginning, don't fear death. Don't ignore the reality of death. Embrace it. Embrace it because this leads to wisdom. Ephesians 5.15 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Jonathan Edwards years ago famously wrote 70 resolutions by which he sought to order his life. And among them were several statements like this. Number six says, Resolved to live with all my might, while I do live. Number 17 says, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Number 52, you can tell this is a theme throughout his resolutions. Number 52, he writes, I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolved that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done supposing I live to an old age. You know, this kind of perspective of wanting to maximize every moment for God's glory, it comes when you regularly think upon such truths as the reality of death. And not just the reality of death and the darkness of that, but the reality of eternity and the glory of being face-to-face with Christ. The fact that we belong to him and are called to live for his glory, to seek the reward that is to come. A life spent for Christ is, the, is truly the best kind of life, the only kind of life that matters. That kind of life is going to be filled with the most joy and bring the greatest reward. So contemplate your death. Don't ignore it. Embrace the fact that life is short, but we have a Savior who promises us resurrection, and he's already opened the door for us. He was the first one. And so we don't have to fear death, but we do know that our time here is limited. Take advantage of every moment. This kind of mindset's really rooted in the truths that Jesus taught us when he said in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Friends, a heart that longs for eternity and lives in its light will lead to a life that is well-lived on earth. So you need maturity. You need the right perspective on death and on eternity. But finally, you need a commitment to finish strong. A commitment to finish strong. I think perhaps one of the greatest pitfalls for older believers is thinking that you've done your job. To think that, you know what, I've put my time in. I served for 32 years on this committee in my church. You know, I've shared the gospel with people. I've raised my kids And now it's their turn to do the work. I can kind of coast into the finish line, put this thing in cruise control, and roll right on in. Friends, I want to exhort you not to think that way. Finish strong. Remember that word of exhortation to the older men to be steadfast. Yes, your strength isn't what it used to be. That's okay. God knows that. He doesn't expect from you something that you don't have. Yes, you have more limitations, And you have to spend your energies wisely. That's all 
fine. And that's all true. We need to be content with those limitations and embrace them. But at the same time, don't sit on the sidelines. Don't disengage from the mission God has given us. I love what Paul writes in Philippians 3. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. He says, I know I'm not there yet. I'm not done. He says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And listen to what he says. Let those of us who are mature think in this way. Whatever's come behind, leave it in the past. Setting your eyes on Christ, pressing forward, straining ahead for the finish line. So keep pressing on. Keep running. Don't set your heart on the temporary rest that comes here in this life. Set your eyes and your gaze on the eternal rest that Christ has purchased for us with his blood. Reach for that. Reach for that. So that you can say with Paul, like he writes in 2 Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Older brothers and sisters, we need your ministry. We need your maturity. So keep seeking Christ. Keep growing in the faith. Do not allow the allure of the world to distract you with false promises of rest. Do not allow the years of hardship to make you cynical and discouraged and cause you to disengage. Persevere in your faith. Run the race. Keep pressing on. Labor to hear those words from our Savior. Well done, good and faithful servant. Your reward is coming, and it will be worth it. May many members of Christ's church praise him for the work he accomplishes through you and through those that you impact, all for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. God in heaven, as we consider the shortness of life and the great privilege it is to be entrusted with the mission of the gospel, I pray that you would strengthen the resolve of all of us here today, no matter what our age. Strengthen our resolve to seek you, to grow in maturity, to be faithful, to serve you, and to impact those around us. We thank you for the hope we have through the gospel, for the promise of resurrection, the solution to our regrets from the past and the cross. We thank you for the hope we have of reward one day. I pray that you would give us a laser focus on seeking Christ and serving him. I thank you, God, for the mature believers in this church. Thank you for the sacrifices they have made. Thank you for the stability that they lend this body. Thank you to the encouragement and the blessing that they are to those of us who are younger than them. We praise you, God, for what you've accomplished in their life, for opening their eyes to the beauty of Christ, convicting them of sin, and awakening them to faith and life and joy. We thank you, God, for how you've used them over the years. We pray that you would continue to use them. Encourage their hearts this morning that they are not to be set on the sidelines, but that they can take the remaining strength that they have, the wealth of wisdom and experience that they have, 
and the remaining years that they have and invest them in your eternal purposes. Bring them great reward. Bless them richly for their sacrifice, God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.